0: The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord! And this was his message after me comes the one more powerful than i the straps of whom sandals i am not worthy to stoop down and untie i baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the holy spirit this is the word of the lord thanks be to god you may take your seats
1: Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you are not a God who awaits us to find you. You are the God who comes to find us. You find us through your spirit. You find us through your word. And you've come to find us in the person of Jesus. Jesus. And we pray uh, that wherever we are in the spectrum of faith this morning, whether we are convinced that all the things that we've been singing about, all that we've just heard is true or we're unconvinced or somewhere in between, God, we pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would give us ears to hear you speaking to us, and Lord, that you would Open our eyes to see um, that, that you are here, that you are present, that all this is true, and that it changes everything. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. My name is Dave. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series today on the gospel according to Mark, and we're calling it The Way of Jesus. Before Christianity was called Christianity, it was actually called the way. Why was it called the way? Uh, we, We see this actually in the New Testament in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 19, and Acts 24. Christianity was called the way because Christians were just so different. They lived differently. They saw the world differently. They were different in the way that they loved. And we're going to look at that next week in our second sermon in this series. They were different in the way they thought about power, different in the way they thought about money, different in the way they thought about uh, about society and compassion and the poor, different in the way they thought about suffering. They were different in the way that they faced death. Why were Christians in the first century so different Well, they were different because Jesus is different. Jesus is different from every other religious figure, every other religious teacher, every other God. Uh, And in this series, we're going to learn how different Jesus is. That's what the gospel according to Mark is about. And as we understand how different Jesus is from everything and everyone we're going to learn that he can make us different too. And if you've never met Jesus, he can make you different as well. Now this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, Who is Mark? Why are we reading his book? Uh, Mark is actually a, a person that appears several times in the New Testament in the book of Acts. He appears in Acts chapter 12 as part of the mission team of Paul and Barnabas. He's called John Mark there. At one point in this mission trip, Mark actually abandons the team. And this creates all sorts of massive fallout between Paul, which then creates fallout between Paul and Barnabas. And we don't know how long this lasts, but we know that by 2 Timothy, Paul and Mark are reconciled. Mark actually is a messy person with a messy story. And somewhere between Acts and 2 Timothy, which is a significant period of time, John Mark starts working as a secretary for the Apostle Peter, and uh, Peter actually calls him in his epistle, 1 Peter, he calls Mark his son. They had a very close relationship, and most early church fathers believe that Mark actually wrote the eyewitness account of Peter about the life of Jesus, and there's a few other clues in the book of Mark that uh, that, that showed this to us. Uh, Mark actually uses names Peter proportionately more than any other gospel writer, and Mark actually only records events where Peter is present. And so we can assume uh, that this is actually Peter's story, and it's a story that has changed Mark's life. And so today we're going to look at the introduction to the whole gospel. And in this introduction, uh, Mark is going to introduce us to the way of Jesus. He's going to show us what this way is, where we find it, and how we follow it. And that's going to be the th- those, those are going to be the three things we're going to look at today. What it is, where we find it, and how we follow it. Let's start with the first uh, thing here. What is the way? The way of Jesus. What is it? Well, Mark introduces this whole book by saying that it is good news. Uh, in the New Testament Greek, the word for good news is euangelion, which is where we get the English word evangelism. And it, it, it just means good news. And when you hear the word evangelism today, it has all sorts of religious meaning. But it actually existed before Christianity, and in the ancient world, it wasn't explicitly religious. Evangelion, or evangelism, actually just meant a real-life event of historic significance. So let me give you an example. In 9 BC, when Caesar Octavius, who later became Caesar Augustus, was born, there was a birth announcement. And the birth announcement said the birthday of the God, uh, he was considered a God by the Romans, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of good news. Now if you hear a parallel there between Mark's introduction to his gospel and this birth announcement of Caesar of Augustus, then you would, would notice the same thing that anyone in the first century reading this letter would have noticed. When Mark begins his book saying the beginning of the good news about Jesus, everyone in the ancient world knew what he was saying. He was saying that something incredible had happened, something that changed the course of history, something in real life. This was not some kind of spiritual idea or philosophical concept. It was a historical event. You see, at its core... Christianity is not advice about how to follow God. It's actually good news that challenges you to investigate and believe. Now, if you are here and you're figuring out what you think about Christianity... Uh, maybe, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time and you're making your way back and you're wondering if you could ever believe the things that you once did, or maybe you've never stepped foot in a church. If that's where you are, the question you should be asking yourself this morning is not, can I do this? The question you should be asking is, is this true? That's the radical claim that Mark is making, that at its core Christianity is not good advice that you need to follow, but it's actually a historical event that you need to investigate and decide if you're willing to believe. And by the way, if you are a Christian, you need to do the same thing. If you are here and you are a Christian, you you have put your faith in Jesus and you're trying to follow Jesus, the question you need to be wrestling today is not, can I do this? the question you need to be wrestling with is, is this true? So what is this good news that Mark actually is telling us? What is the historical event? What is the significance of Jesus' birth? Well, Mark goes on to say the good news about Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God, and those two phrases are so packed. This is the closest thing that we get in the gospel of Mark uh, of a birth narrative. Mark doesn't tell us About Joseph and Mary and how they were engaged. There's no scene of a birth in a manger. There's no wise men or shepherds or angels. All we get are these two phrases Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. See, Mark is not interested in telling us how Jesus was born. He wants to tell us why Jesus was born. Why was Jesus born? He was born to be the Messiah. What is a Messiah? The Messiah is a Hebrew word from the Old Testament that means anointed one or anointed king. And if you read the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, beginning with King David, there are a series of prophecies, promises, that promise that an anointed king would come, that God would provide a king, not only for Israel, but a king who would make everything wrong in this world right. Listen to the way that Isaiah describes the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. He writes, Of the greatness of his government and, the, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the Old Testament uh, promised that a Messiah was coming? Well, it matters because it means that justice is is not just a wishful idea, but it's actually woven into the fabric of the universe and the fabric of history. You see, Messiah means that justice matters and that justice will happen. It means that there will one, one day come a day when there are no more school shootings, like the one that we all read about this past week in East Oakland. It means that there will no more be poverty, that one day there will no more be inequity. There will be no inequity in the health system. There will be no misogyny. There will be no homophobia. There will be no racism. All that is wrong in this world will be made right. And it's a promise woven into the Scriptures, a promise that Mark claims has been fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. He is the Messiah. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? It means that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus is not half and half. Jesus is not God who then transformed into human. He is fully God and fully human. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it means that God is more than an idea God is more than a philosophy, God is more than a religious teaching, God is actually a historical person, which means you don't need to be a philosopher or a scientist or a monk to know God. All you need is to know Jesus. You need to know who Jesus is, you need to know what Jesus did, and you need to know what Jesus thinks about you, and you will know God. See, God is not an idea that we need to master. He is a person that we need to know. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if all this is true, it means that everything has changed. History has changed. And God is not only interested in redeeming our souls, He's actually interested in redeeming the entire world. God is actually creating a new heavens and new earth. And he is coming to make all things new. So where do you find this? Where do you find the way? Uh, The first thing that happens in the Gospel of Mark after he tells us about this incredible news is that we're introduced to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist appears in the wilderness. And the whole countryside and all of Jerusalem is going out to the wilderness by the Jordan River to meet him and to be baptized by him. What is happening here? Well, Mark explains this event by quoting three scriptures, Exodus chapter 23, Isaiah 40, and Malachi chapter 3. Uh, And he melds these three verses together, and he says this. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark is showing us that the way of God, the way of Jesus, goes through the wilderness. Where do you find the way of Jesus? The only place to find the way of Jesus is in the wilderness. Why is that important? It's important because what that means is that you cannot save yourself. You see, the wilderness is a place where none of your resources work. When Mark describes the wilderness here, he's not imagining Yosemite, right? He he is imagining a desert in the Middle East. That's what the wilderness meant in the New Testament. Uh, And in, in, in this environment that Mark is describing for us, this is an environment where there is no food, where there is no water, where nothing can grow, a place where none of your resources will be of any Help to you. Uh, in the book of Exodus, when pe- the people of Israel were in the wilderness, uh, they were so hungry, they were so desperate, that they actually longed to go back to, to Egypt. In Exodus 16, it says, uh, The people of Israel are saying this. They, they said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They're complaining to Moses, and indirectly they're complaining to God. And and listen to what they're saying. They're saying we had more resources as slaves than we do in the wilderness. At least when we were slaves, people fed us. At least we, we, we had an ability to handle our hunger. We had resources to deal with our hunger. We knew that we would not die of salvation. At least when we were not slaves, we were, we are, we were not as helpless as we are now in the wilderness. You see... They thought the wilderness was worse than slavery, and actually they were right, because that's what the wilderness teaches us. It teaches us a truth that we all need to learn sooner or later later in life that ultimately we are all helpless. The resources that we think that we have to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves safe, to make ourselves happy, they will always eventually fall short. The wilderness exposes our helplessness, and it proves to us that we cannot save ourselves. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're old or you're young. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. No one wants to feel helpless, which is why none of us want to be in the wilderness. John Zoll, he wrote a book about addiction, And he has a a, a wonderful way of describing this feeling of helplessness that we experience in the wilderness. He says, sure, we may want God's help, just not in the area where we actually need it. Like a dog in the veterinarian's office, trying to avoid having a cast put on its broken leg, we struggle against the very thing we need to heal us. Isn't that a great image? A dog refusing to have a cast that it needs to heal its broken leg. See, we want God's help, but we don't want to feel helpless. We want God to meet our needs, but we don't want to be needy. We don't want to feel like God is actually our only hope, which is why we orchestrate our lives to avoid the wilderness at all costs. And when we find ourselves in the wilderness... We start to question all sorts of things about the meaning of life or the significance of our life or even maybe the existence or the goodness of God. But the thing is that the Bible shows us over and over again that the only place that we can meet God is the wilderness. Uh, We see it here in Mark. That's why in verse 4, we see that that John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 5, we find that, that the people coming to John from all over the countryside and all over the city, they're coming to receive a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. They're confessing their sins why did these people go into the wilderness well because they knew that they were helpless and there's nothing quite like sin and brokenness to reveal how helpless we actually are but that's not the only thing they felt you see if all they felt was helplessness they could have just stayed where they were they went to the wilderness because there was something compelling about the wilderness john the baptist did not just preach a message of repentance, he preached a message of repentance and forgiveness, which means that there is a God who is waiting to forgive you, a God who is waiting to accept you, a God who is waiting to heal you, a God who is waiting to meet your needs, a God who is waiting to show you how valued you are, a God who is waiting to reveal the depths of his love for you. They were drawn first by their need, but what took them into the wilderness was not just their need, but the promise and invitation of God's love and his forgiveness. Do you believe that you have a God like that? A God who loves you, a God who will forgive you, a God who is waiting for you. Some of you are struggling right now, and you are in the wilderness. You're facing something that makes you feel helpless. Maybe it's a sin that you just don't think can be forgiven. Maybe it is a shame that you cannot shake no matter how hard you try. Maybe it is a burden that you're carrying that is just too much to bear. And what God is saying at the very beginning of this gospel is that if you are in the wilderness, you're exactly where you need to be to receive God's help. You're exactly where you need to be to receive God's love. You're Exactly where you need to be to receive God's healing. So, how do you do this? How do you receive God in the wilderness? How do you follow the way of Jesus in the wilderness? This brings us to the last thing we're going to look at this morning how you follow it. How do you follow the way? Well, John the Baptist had a second message. His first message was a message of repentance and forgiveness, but his second message, And you find in verse 7, was, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is more powerful than him, and he's saying that Jesus is more worthy than him, and he's saying that he is so worthy that he feels unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals which is really low because if you understood what a sandal looked like in the ancient world, these are sandals that were worn on unpaved roads that were shared with animals, so they were caked with dirt and animal waste. And in, in the ancient world, people of any means never touched their own sandals. Only slaves would remove or untie a sandal. And John is saying, I am so unworthy that I cannot even do that. And so what's happening here? Is John discouraged? If, if, if he isn't worthy to untie Jesus' sandal, how is he going to be worthy to baptize people? How he, is he going to be worthy to say prophecies? How he, is he going to make himself available to be used by God in any kind of way? Well, John says he's unworthy. But that's not all he says. He says that Jesus is more powerful than him. And Jesus is bringing a fuller baptism. Not a baptism just with water, but a baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist balances his feeling of inadequacy and unworthiness together with the overwhelming reality of God's power. See, if you... you, just even in this passage, if you read it, you, you probably were, did not think of John the Baptist as a timid or discouraged person. No one in the first century would have said that John the Baptist lacked confidence. I mean, the guy wore camel hair, right? He ate locusts, right? This was a bold man. But at the same time, John the Baptist knew that he was unworthy, John the Baptist had this incredible balance of complete humility and bold confidence. Where did that come from? It came from Jesus the Messiah, from the Son of God. See, John didn't say, I am unworthy to untie anyone's sandals. He said he was unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. See, if, if the reason that you feel unworthy, that if, if the reason you feel insecure, if the reason you feel humble is because you're comparing yourself to other people, you're going to struggle with your confidence. You're going to struggle with your confidence. You're going to always worry what other people are thinking about you. You will feel isolated. You'll feel misunderstood. You'll feel alone. And in the words of LaCrae, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die for their rejection. Now, if you get your confidence from comparing yourself to other people, the same thing will be true of you. You may act confident, but actually you're very thin-skinned and easily offended. You're, you're, You're deep down. You'll always worry what other people are thinking about you. You will always be ready to defend yourself because if you live for other people's acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. But if you find your identity in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, you will find simultaneously unworthy and confident. You will say, I am unworthy to untie his sandals, but you will not be afraid of what people think about you, not because you don't care about people, but because their opinions have no power over you. And you will feel more secure in the love of Jesus than you could ever feel in the approval or praise of others. In his book, his memoir, Unashamed, Lecrae uh, actually talks about how his life spiraled out of control when he found himself driving drunk uh, on his way to his mom's house to get a gun so that he could shoot somebody that he had a beef with. And uh, he was scaring himself, he he felt that he was out of control, and he, in in a moment of sanity, he he drove into a hospital, rushed inside and said, I'm about to do something really bad, I need help. And so the staff uh, calmed him down, asked him some questions, they brought the police, the police asked him questions, and then the police took him to rehab that night. And looking back during that time in his life, Lecrae quotes Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now listen to what Lecrae says about that verse. He says, a lot of people puff up when they recite this verse like it's some sort of Christian bragging rite. They think this verse is a way to declare how strong you are, how tough you are. How brave you are. But that is the opposite of what this verse means. Instead, it is a manifesto for the broken, for the needy, for the helpless, for the ones who are stumbling more than they are stepping, for the ones who are willing to admit they are not brave enough, tough enough, strong enough. I can't save myself through my own strength, through pretending, by working harder or pulling myself up from my bootstraps, There's no woman that can save me, no drug that can save me, no program or clinic that can save me. I no longer thought I was a Christian because I was strong and had it all together. I now knew I was a Christian because I'm weak and admitted I need a Savior. There was no other power that could save me outside the power of God. How do you follow the way Of Jesus. The only way to follow the way of Jesus is by stumbling and falling and failing, and realizing even when your life is a mess, even though you are a mess, even though you don't have it all together, that God meets you in the wilderness, even though you are unworthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, that you have an identity that can never be taken away from you, and you're valued and loved and forgiven and accepted, and the power of God is at work in your life. Only Jesus can make you this humble and this confident at the same time. John the Baptist uh, prepared the way for Jesus in the wilderness. But for the remainder of the gospel according to Mark, when that word appears, way, and sometimes it's translated road, pay attention to it. Because the road of Jesus, the way of Jesus will ultimately lead to a cross. See, the cross was the ultimate wilderness for Jesus. On the cross, Jesus chose not to use any of his resources to save himself or help himself. Jesus, who had more power than anyone else, was beaten. He was stripped. He was whipped. He was crucified, and he gave up his life, and he did this willingly. And it didn't matter that we were unworthy. It didn't matter how much we stumbled. It didn't matter how much of a mess we made of our lives. He gave his life freely simply because he loves us. See, Jesus lost God in his wilderness so that we can find God in our wilderness. And that's what this table represents. This is a table of God's grace. At this table, God is saying, I want all of you, uh, not the, the, the person that you're pretending to be or think that you have to be, but the person that you are, the person that stumbles and falls, the person who needs God, who has no hope except in Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's a feast of mercy. For people who know that they have nothing to offer but their own sins. People who know that they're unworthy and yet nevertheless are drawn to this table because they also believe that they're loved and they're redeemed and that they have a future and that because of Jesus one day they will be perfect. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father in heaven, we thank you. That Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, gave his life, gave his body, entered the wilderness, and lost even God on the cross so that we might find God in our wilderness. We thank you that because he bore our sin, we who are unworthy get to receive your approval and acceptance that we have been given his very righteousness, and we pray that at this table that you would help us to believe that these things are true, that you would, that you would build up our faith, that you would give us a sense, an un- unshakable sense of confidence that comes not in ourselves, not from the approval of others, but in Jesus alone, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.